Thank you for that prayer, Pastor Nathan. It's good to see everyone. I hope that you are glad to be in the Lord's house this morning. Hope you have been enjoying the uh, singing uh, and the fellowship thus far this morning. Uh, I say that uh, only because uh, I know that today's text is not going to be, it's not one of those like really chipper texts, you know, when you come to the Bible and like, this is, this makes me happy. Uh, I'm just saying that up front, just to forewarn you, just give you that little heads up, that the, the section we're going to cover in 1 Kings as we've been marching through these texts of Scripture is a little bit gloomy, if you will, uh, much like the gray skies that are outside, uh, at least they were gray earlier today. Um, this text kind of has that hue to it, and, and I mean to say that because these are the texts that we often don't want to engage in. We don't want to read about all this bad stuff. But I would say that what's revealed mostly throughout this text is actually uh, our own hearts. I think what is laid open as these pages of scripture will hopefully be examined this morning is our own hearts. Not just these uh, vile kings that have come uh, many uh, millennia before us. It's actually it's revealing the nature of the human heart. And also the nature of the human heart that is desperate for someone to save him. I think that's what's really going to be apparent as we cover a really large section of 1 Kings. We're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 15, actually. And we're going to look at verses 25 all the way through verse 28 of chapter 16. Because I think what's going on here is we have this sort of doctrine, if you will, of man's depravity sort of at play. If you've heard of that, you might have heard of the, the, the total depravity or something like that is, is, a, is a tenet of the Christian faith, depending on which circle of Christian faith you grew up in. But essentially, it's the, it's the belief and the affirmation that man's heart is totally corrupt from the fall. Which is, we could even more perhaps simply, that we uh, as human beings, we, don't, uh, we aren't sinners because we do sinful things. No, we are sinners, therefore we do sinful things. It's part of our nature. It's, it's, this is that fundamental belief of original sin. That because of Adam and Eve and their rebellion in the garden. That everyone since has been born, quote, into sin. Uh, the Apostle Paul talks about this in Romans 5. That really, uh, really significant chapter of his letter to the Romans in verse 19. He talks about how that by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. And actually, if you do a little bit of studying, this doctrine is just prevalent all throughout the scriptures. In ways that are implicit and explicit, I would say, as well. I think of Genesis chapter 6 verse 5, where it talks about man's heart and thoughts were only evil continually. Or Jeremiah 17, where it talks about the heart of man is desperately wicked. Who can know it? What's, and even just an example after example, there's passages of scripture that we can go to that sort of prove and evidence the fact that man's heart is depraved. He is a sinner and he does sinful things. This isn't a popular notion, I know that. And in fact, I would say that uh, overturning this whole idea that man is born into sin as one of, I would say, the premier driving forces of those who wish to undermine the Christian faith. If we can explain away our depravity, we can get outside of the fact that we are culpable, that we are guilty. If we can explain away the, the, the things that we have done, 
If, if that horrendous deed that has just been carried out by that criminal is not because of his sin nature, but because of something else, then man doesn't need a savior. He doesn't need someone to intervene sovereignly for him. He just needs uh, therapy or rehabilitation or whatever. Which isn't to say that those things are wrong. It's just to say that the, the more reasons that we give for the things that we do, the more we are insistent that a Redeemer is unnecessary. And if a Redeemer is unnecessary, then God has no place in our hearts and lives. You, you see how fundamental it is to understand that we are desperate sinners who need someone to deliver us. I would say that's the heart of what the scriptures aims to reveal and show and expose, I would say, even too. Pages upon pages of this Bible that you have in front of you are there to expose just that that the prophet Jeremiah says. That your heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? And then in the follow-up verse right after that, it talks about the fact that it is God alone who searches and knows the hearts. He's the only one that can know them. Also, he's the only one that can remake them too. You see, I think that's what's revealed. As these desperate sinners are exposed, the great deliverer is likewise exposed as the only one who we have hope in. We don't need to go to a ton of psychological proofs to uh, sort of uh, back up that affirmation, that, uh, that affirmation of total depravity. We just have to open our Bibles. And in fact, uh, the passage this morning, I think, is one of the best, or that's a weird way to say it, one of the clearest. <laughs> Here, from 15 chapter, chapter 15, verse 25, through chapter 16, 28, there's just string of kings that are pretty much all really bad. They're deplorable kings. And one by one, they all fall. They all succumb to their own foolishness, to their own sense of folly, to their own hedonistic lifestyles. And it, what's revealed, what is, just comes to the surface, is this exceeding sinfulness of sin. Which I think is something that we can all relate to and why we need someone to save us. I think that's what is going to come to. So uh, quickly this morning, four lessons as we go through this text that sort of relate to the evil of evil, if you will. Uh, firstly, in verse uh, 25 of chapter 15, we're going to see through uh, King Baasha that evil is mocking. Evil is Mocking Here in verse 25, it says, And Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, began to reign over Israel. This, as you remember, uh, Nadab is the son of Jeroboam. Last a couple weeks ago, we talked about Jeroboam and, and the very uh, horrible demise that he incurred for his wicked lifestyle, his wicked reign. He brought in all kinds of pagan doctrines and influences and beliefs into the culture of Israel, which resulted in him facing a really horrible uh, demise and the ripping away of his kingdom. This was sort of preempted by his first son Abijah's death. If you remember, Abijah is ill and he, he, he tries to swindle his way into good blessing. But in fact, all he gets out of the prophet is a word of condemnation. A word of a warning that his kingdom was going to be taken away. And so now Abijah has passed on and so has Jeroboam. And now Nadab, the remaining son of Jeroboam's house, comes to the throne. He began to reign, verse 25, over Israel in the second year of Asa, king of Judah. And uh, uh, this is Nadab, reigned over Israel two years. 
And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And walked in the way of his father. And in his sin wherewith he made Israel to sin. So you see, nothing much has changed. There's been a change of power, yes. There's been a change of who is sitting on the throne making all of the the policy decisions and whatnot. But nothing has changed in terms of Jeroboam's cultic worship of sinful lifestyles. It's the same. He's continuing in his father's wicked and deplorable legacy. And of course, as we've noted, this reign doesn't last long. Only two years. Short time on the throne. And that's when this guy named Baasha makes himself very much seen and heard. Look at verse 27. And Baasha, the son of Ahijah, this is not the same Ahijah that was the prophet, a different guy, same name, uh, of the house of Issachar, conspired against him. And Baasha smote him at Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines. For Nadab and all Israel laid siege to Gibbethon. Even in the third year of Asa, king of Judah, did Baasha slay him. And reigned in his stead. And it came to pass when he reigned that he smote all the house of Jeroboam. He left not to Jeroboam any that breathed until he had destroyed him. According unto the saying of the Lord which he spake by his servant Ahijah the Shilonite. Because of the sins of Jeroboam which he sinned and which he made Israel, Israel sin by his provocation. Wherewith he provoked the Lord God of Israel to anger. So you see, he comes up and he conspires against the reigning king, Nadab. And he conspires, and not just that, he leads a successful revolt over his throne. Now, a couple of notes about this little section that just, just stand out to me. The first is, is it, it is so compelling to me that God uses evil for his own purposes. He kind of uses them as one would use a tool in a garage. He kind of employs it for his good use and discards of it if it's no longer necessary to him. Such is what he does with Baasha here in this particular moment. Remember from chapter 14, verses 7 through 11, Ahijah the prophet, the same one that was referenced in verse 29, announces this judgment that's going to come on not just Jeroboam, but his entire lineage. His whole reign is going to be ended and his house is going to be utterly crushed. And now to accomplish that very thing, notice who he employs, Baasha. A guy who's leading an evil revolt. And notice verse 33, he's not the most upstanding guy. In the third year of Asa, king of Judah, began Baasha, the son of Ahijah, to reign over all Israel and Terzah. Twenty and four years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of Jeroboam. And in his sin wherewith he made Israel to sin. It's a very common verse, is it not? Same as in verse 26. You can see these parallels going. There's a change of leadership and yet there's nothing else that's really changed. It's still evil. The heart of man is only evil continually. Baasha's insurrection accomplishes God's will. Isn't that a fascinating move of this story? That evil accomplishes God's judgment. From which we can make this amazing statement that evil is not outside the confines of God's sovereignty. Evil is not somehow outside of the bounds of God's ability to control. He still reigns even as it seemingly seems as though evil is winning the day and getting the best of life, it so to speak. 
Even still, sin, for all of its wicked tendrils that it spreads across our lives, that it spreads across this world, it is still subservient. It still bows to the one who is reigning over all things. It will never truly win the day, even if it looks like it's winning the hour. (laughs) Our day is won by the sovereign one, the king of kings, if you will. He is the one who still reigns supreme. Yes, even as evil is seemingly winning, even as evil is seemingly pressing us towards the brink of giving up and surrendering, evil is still subservient to the God and the judge of all things. He can use it to accomplish his purposes. Again, we can hearken back to Romans 8.28. That all things work together for good to them who are the called according to the purposes of God. They work together according to that. That plan is how they work out. Because the sovereign one is utilizing them. Employing them according to his sovereign will. Evil bows to this king. But notice also how the historian introduces Baasha. I think this is so fascinating. Notice verse 27. And Baasha, the son of Ahijah, of the house of Issachar, conspired against him, meaning Nadab. If you've studied the Old Testament for a while, you know that one of the, one of the things that is so important about Old Testament scripture is names. Names mean something. Names are significant. They aren't just kind of thrown out willy-nilly and just so you get to know people's uh, lineage, so to speak. Well, they are for that, but they have lots of meaning. Therefore, when we are introduced to Baasha here, and he is being uh, described as being belonging to the house of Issachar, we ought to take notice. Issachar, you might know, is a descendant of the patriarch Jacob. He comes from that lineage. And what do we know about Jacob? (laughs) He was a swindler. (laughs) He was a conniver. He was a deceiver. And he was a conspirator who lied his way through life almost the entire way. His name literally means a layer of snares. Which is uh, also amazing that God still used him. God still utilized Jacob and used him to further his plans and promises. But again, Jacob is a swindler. And what do we see Baasha doing here? He's conspiring and conniving and laying a snare. Sort of a very stark element in which the treachery of Jacob is still continuing. The apple hasn't fallen very far from the tree. Even generations later. He's still carrying on that very deceptive nature of man's kind's hearts and its proclivity to sin. All of which reminds me of this. Ecclesiastes 1.9. We preached about that a while ago. Ecclesiastes 1.9. There is no new thing under the sun. Which basically means evil is just a remix of past evils. The the sins that we see so prominent in our day are nothing inherently new. They may have new forms, new, new marketing, but it's basically the same sins that have just been recast and put forward as a new way to get happiness, get satisfaction, to make our own way. This is what sin does. It mockingly promises you something new and better. This has never been done before. This has never been uh, offered before. This new thing. This is how you can make it. This is how you can get it. This is how you can feel settled. But evil mocks you because all you end up with is more of the same. 
More of the same ruin, more of the same devastation, more of the same disaster. Sin begets sin. Even here, this uh, terrible insurrection leads to what? Another reign of terror and sin. His life is proof of this in the text that Pastor Nathan read just a moment ago. God sent a prophet, a, uh, this one Jehu, to come in and announce this word towards him. A word of judgment that, yes, even as you have continued in this legacy of evil, your throne will be taken away as well. And notice... In verses 3 and 4, listen to these words. Behold, are the words of God to Baasha. I will take away the, pro- the posterity of Baasha and the posterity of his house. And will make thy house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Him that dieth of Baasha in the city shall the dogs eat. And him that dieth in, of his in the fields shall the fowls of the air eat. If you, have, if you have a good memory, if you go back to chapter 14, verse 11, it's almost the exact same pronunciation of judgment. The exact same end which was announced to Jeroboam comes upon the very guy who has sought and now succeeded in supplanting Jeroboam. A little bit of divine poetry at work per se. But I think all of this shows that evil is a mocker. It promises us something that we will get, but it always begets evil. It doesn't ever deliver on its promises. Sin always, always, always is disastrous. It's always devastating. And it always makes a mockery of God's truth and beauty and holiness. It never fulfills those things that it says it's going to. It is a mocker. And it will not lead to good ends. Which leads me to the second lesson in this text this morning. From chapter 16 verse 8. That's not only evil is mocking. But evil is distracting. Evil is distracting. Notice verse 8. In the twenty and sixth year of Asa king of Judah began Elah. The son of Baasha to reign over Israel and Terzah two years. So Baasha's son comes to the throne after Baasha's demise. And he likewise has a very short ride on the throne. Just two years. And he's very quickly struck down. Again by one of his own. Another guy in the house of Israel. One of his own military commanders in fact. Uh, leads an uprising and takes over Elah's throne. Look at it. Verse 9. And his servant Zimri. Captain of half his chariots. Conspired against him as he was in Terza, Drinking himself drunk in the house of Arza. Steward of his house in Terza. And Zimri went in and smote him and killed him in the twenty and seventh year of Asa, king of Judah, and reigned in his stead. Zimri was perhaps unimpressed with Elah's leadership abilities. We're not given much detail about Elah and his reign. There's not much historically either. Perhaps he was just so befuddled that this guy, this, this Elah guy, is now the king over Israel. And such is why he leaves this conspiracy to overthrow and take the throne for himself. There's an implication there in verse 10 that as they're in this house of Arza, that Arza and Zimri there are sort of in cahoots with one another to successfully carry out this conspiracy. Perhaps they were... Very aware of King Elah's propensity to drink himself drunk as he is described there in verse 9. Regardless, their snare works. Elah does what he always did perhaps. 
He is drinking himself into a stupor and he plays right into their hands. And he's unaware of anything that's going on. And before he knows it, he is dead. Zimri ambushes him again, verse 10. And Zimri went in and smote him. Killing him and eventually the rest of his entire household. Zimri does exactly what Baasha had done just a couple of years previously. And wipes out the entire royal house. Zimri went in, verse 10, and smote him and killed him in the 20 and 7th year of Asa, king of Judah. And reigned in his stead. And it came to pass when he began to reign as soon as he sat on his throne. That he slew all the house of Baasha. He left him not one that pisseth against a wall, neither of his kinsfolks, nor of his friends. Thus did Zimri destroy all the house of Baasha, according to the word of the Lord, which he spake against Baasha by Jehu the prophet. For all the sins of Baasha, and all the sins of Elah his son, by which they sinned, and by which they made Israel to sin, and provoking the Lord of Israel to anger with their vanities. Now the rest of the acts of Elah, and all that he did, are they not written in the book of, of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? That sort of ending sort of line to each of these kings' reign you might get familiar with. He's leaving off so much of what these guys did and to make a statement that evil is distracting. What, this is all that we know about Elah. <laughs> He passes off the scene here unceremoniously. There's not much left to report about what he did. All of it doesn't really matter in light of eternity is what the historian is saying. The only notable thing we know about Elah is what? Verse 9, he likes to drink himself drunk. He likes to, uh, to uh, live this life of hedonism and passion. Uninhibited pleasure is, is precisely this image that we get of Elah. And he serves to illustrate just the, the wild distraction of evil. And what it can do to the human heart. It can lead us to ends that perhaps we never ever, ever imagined us going before. Until you're drinking yourselves into supers and you're ruining lives. This, I think, is, is sin's most visible marker. Its most visible signal is this uninhibited passion. This is sort of what uh, the Apostle Paul is getting at in Ephesians, by the way, when he says, don't be drunk with wine, but be drunk by the Holy Spirit. And one of the chief fruits of the Holy Spirit is self-control, keeping passions in check, keeping those things which may or may not be good, or just keeping them under regards, in reserve. (laughs) And here Eli is demonstrating the exact opposite of that. No self-control, no, uh, no uh, ability to keep those passions in check. Instead, he has allowed his very short reign to warp all of his preoccupations. And now, whatever is seemingly good is okay. And this is so distracting from what a king ought to do and be and model for his country. And in fact... There's a word about this in the Proverbs of Solomon. I'll just read this quick. You can note this down. Proverbs 31 verse 4 says this. It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine nor for princes strong drink. Lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the judgment of any of the afflicted. 
Forgotten what it looked like to model leadership to those that were under him. Because evil is distracting. It leads us to places we never thought we'd go. And leads us to do things we never thought we'd do. This is always the gradual evil of evil. Is that it gradually allows us to get distracted by more and more and more. To our gaze is eventually no longer where it used to be. But it's totally turned. It's totally opposite of what it once was. Evil is distracting. Thirdly. Evil is fleeting. Evil is mocking and distracting. And also it's fleeting. And this is perhaps the most very apparent lesson in the text. This is transience of what evil can offer. There's that word there. Did you notice it in verse 13 at the end of it? That they provoked the Lord God of Israel to anger with their vanities. Where that ought to strike us, and we ought to remember again, hearkening back to our days of studying the book of Ecclesiastes, this is that same word, the vanity of vanities, all is vanity, says the preacher in Ecclesiastes 1 1. Meaning that it's a vapor, it's breath, it's the wind. And these, you see, these things that they're going to, they cannot offer what they promise. Evil is fleeting and only gives you a a very small transient experience of power or pleasure or prestige. There's no better example of this than King Zimri. Because you can hardly call this a reign. (laughs) He barely ruled on the throne. In fact, verse 15, you want to know how long His time on the throne was seven days. In the 20 and 7th year of Asa, king of Judah, did Zimri reign. Kind of a joking word there. Seven days in Terza. (laughs) One week. He's a flash in the pan king. And it comes (laughs) to a really devastating end as he violates the number one rule when it comes to leading a successful takeover. I'm not advocating for successful hostile takeovers, but the number one rule of successful hostile takeovers is what? Get the military support. (laughs) You don't do any move on the capital unless you know that those military guys are going to back you up. What does he do? Zimri again, he goes, he overthrows Elah. We have to assume that he does this in such a way that no one else really knows about it. Because notice verse 15 again. He's reigning seven days. And at the beginning of that, the people or the army, the, the countrymen that were encamped at Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines. And the countrymen, the people that were encamped, heard say, Zimri hath conspired and hath also slain the king. Wherefore all Israel made Omri the captain of the host, king over Israel that day in the camp. So suddenly news comes, a messenger perhaps, a messenger pigeon, I don't know how they transferred news, but somehow this news reaches the front lines as they are leading this siege with the Philistines, as this conflict is going on, and suddenly everyone becomes aware that now they are no longer under the rule of Elah, actually this guy Zimri has taken the throne. Now everyone doesn't like that dude. This doesn't sit well with these soldiers. And they go out and they announce, no, we don't answer to Zimri. We answer to Omri. Omri is now our king. This captain of the host that we've been serving alongside of as brothers in arms. He's now our king. We're loyal to him. Verse 17. Omri likes this. 
Omri went up from Gibbethon and all Israel with him, and they besieged Tirzah. So now they're coming to lead their own successful takeover of the throne of Israel. Again, just sidebar, notice all of these changing of powers. Evil begets evil. It leads to more ruin and death and bloodshed and devastation. And we're seeing that patterned over and over and over again. But here now Omri is leading this, uh, this army of soldiers to march on the capital of Israel in Terzah. And word reaches Zimri that this is happening. He's heading up. He's on the horse proverbially, uh, proverbially at the leading, leading the charge of this procession to take this throne for himself. And it came to pass, verse 18, when Zimri saw that the city was taken, that he went into the palace of the king's house and burnt the king's house over him with fire and died. For his sins which he sinned in doing evil in the sight of the Lord and walking in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin which he did to make Israel to sin. Now the rest of the acts of Zimri and his treason that he wrought, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? Evil is fleeting. <laughs> A flash in the pan. And suddenly he realizes that he has no hope. That this army is going to come and he is surely a dead man. And so he does it for them. Burns himself alive in the king's house. (laughs) Evil is fleeting. Despite what sin says you will attain in its embrace. Its promises are nothing but empty guarantees. They are vaporous. They are as vaporous as breath in a cold, wintry day. As you breathe and that air comes out and you see it and it dissipates. That's how fleeting sin is. Its pleasures last for a fleeting moment. What it says and what it promises you and how it entices you with success and satisfaction and significance never leads to those ends. If they do, it's but for a moment. Its attractions are fleeting. It is always foolish gain and nearsighted sacrifice. Or I should say nearsighted success that results in long-term sacrifice. Evil always overpromises and underdelivers. It makes big boasts about what you can get by just pursuing this end. And it never delivers on what it promises you. Evil is fleeting. Evil never leads to good ends. As we've seen pattern for us in this text this morning. Which brings me lastly to the fourth lesson. Evil is deceiving. It's mocking and it's distracting and it's fleeting. And also it's very deceptive. Because it brings us here to this King Omri, who, as we will find out in a moment in verse 23, he sits on the throne eventually for 12 years. Yet despite that, he leaves a very sizable impression on Israelite history. He overthrows Zimri's rule, as we have already read about. And then verse 21, he finds himself caught in a civil war. Then there were people of Israel divided into two parts. Half of the people followed Tibni, the son of Gainath, to make him king, and half followed Omri. But the people that followed Omri prevailed against the people that followed Tibni, the son of Gainath. So Tibni died, and Omri reigned. In the thirty and first year of Asa, king of Judah, began Omri to reign over Israel. Twelve years, six years he reigned in Terzah. So he 
prevails in the civil war, and now he is now the reigning king of Israel. We've seen this throne change hands quite a bit already this morning. But also he leads something else that leads us to sort of notice and and, and be, uh, I think that's also indicative of how Israel is just so unstable. Because in verse 24, yes, verse 24, we are noted how he buys the hill of Samaria and then changes the capital over to that city. And he bought the hill, Samaria of Shemer, for two talents of silver and built on the hill and called the name of the city, which he built after the name of Shemer, owner of the hill, Samaria. Which is to say that he changes the capital once again from Terzah now to Samaria. This is the third capital that Israel has had in their very short time of being separated from Jerusalem. If you remember, that was back in chapter 12. We're in chapter 16, and it's changed hands, the throne has, several times, and the capital has already changed now for three times. Very unstable leadership, if you will. That's putting it nicely. By contrast, by the way, Jerusalem remains Judah's capital for the entire time. For the entire time that they are divided. But interestingly enough, this is all that we know about Omri. Look at verse 27. We're given a hint that he does a lot more. Now the rest of the acts of Omri, which he did, and his might that he showed, are they not written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Omri slept with his fathers and was buried in Samaria, and Ahab, his son, reigned in his stead. You see, the biblical version is a lot more succinct. (laughs) It's considerably smaller than any of the history books might lead you to believe of what Omri actually accomplished. You see, the prevailing scholarly opinion, despite what this text says, where it says he did a few mighty things. <laughs> Lots of historians would say that Omri was actually one of the most important kings in the entire time of the northern and southern kingdoms. Among his accomplishments, he defeats Moab and he makes an alliance with Tyre and Sidon. And he brings political stability to, as we've noted, this kingdom that is just fraught with scandals and wars and infighting and insurrections and all sorts of horrible, uh, horrible events. And he establishes a dynasty that would last for some 50 years. Even further, the historical records regarding Omri sort of note this very dynamic ruler who has a reach far and wide that extends to the very borders of Israel itself. And in fact, some accounts call call Israel, refer to Israel during this time, quote, the land of Omri. He's a very prominent ruler, a powerhouse, if you will. But you would never know that from Scripture, which is curious to me. None of those deeds are put front and center. We have to rely on extra biblical history for those details. In fact, the only other time he's ever mentioned is in Micah chapter 6, verses 13 through 16, where God is pronouncing through the prophet Micah judgment on, you guessed it, the house of Judah and Israel. Where he's mentioned once again with that word of judgment. All of which I think is indicative of this very fact that evil is deceiving. 
That all of the things that Omri does, all of his accomplishments, all of his policy, all of his successes as king, all of his abilities as a ruler, all of the ways he's made to establish Israel as a powerhouse matter nothing in light of eternity. Why? Verse 25. But Omri wrought evil in the eyes of the Lord and did worse than all that were before him. For he walked in all the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in his sin wherewith he made Israel to sin, to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger with their vanities. It's probably like beating a dead horse now with these details, right? <laughs> we get the point. These guys are bad. And I think there's a tendency, at least I have this tendency, maybe it's just me, that when the historians, they're saying that he's worse than all those that were before him, you kind of feel like he's being a little bit hyperbolic. He doesn't really mean it, he's just trying to convey it. (laughs) Actually, I think he really does mean that. That we've gone to this point, we've thought that this guy was really bad, but worse than all of them now is Omri. (laughs) He's continuing the legacy of sin and evil and how it always leads to destruction. And yes, despite no matter uh, all of the, the marks that Omri perhaps left on history, he made no such marks on eternity. Because evil is deceptive. It's deceiving. What it says is prominent and significant and, and important is not in God's eyes. And it matters very little how enterprising and infecting uh, Omri was. Because all that mattered in the end. When you got down to the nuts and bolts, so to speak. The only thing that mattered was that. Verse 25. He wrought evil in the eyes of the Lord. He bought into this insane lie. That evil promotes and prospers by. You know, they say that insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over again and expecting different results. If you keep doing it, you should try something different or else you're a little bit insane. By which we could say this, that sin is the most insane thing that has bewitched our world. Because it promises you, just do the same things and you'll get something different. You can expect something different, something actually fulfilling by trying the same things that countless billions of people have tried before you right this moment. That you can go your own way. You can make your own way in this world. You can be like God. You don't have to follow this one who is supposedly the king over all things. He doesn't even matter. You can push him out of your life and you don't need him to speak to you, to influence you, to guide you, to direct you, to talk to you. You don't need him at all. You can go your own way. What an insane lie. And we might even just step back from this text and what else should we expect from these who are pursuing and believing and promoting the insane lie of evil? Because again, you want to see a pattern, verse 26 of chapter 15. Notice who's mentioned. Chapter 15, verse 26, And he did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father, i.e. Jeroboam, and in his sin wherewith he made Israel to sin. Verse 30, because of the sins of Jeroboam. Verse 34, 
And he did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of Jeroboam. 16 verse 2. For as much as I exalted thee out of the dust, I made thee prince over my people Israel. And I was walked in the way of Jeroboam. Verse 19. For his sins which he sinned in doing evil in the sight of the Lord and walking in the way of Jeroboam. Verse 26. <laughs> for he walked in all the way of Jeroboam. <laughs> evil is a mockery. It offers nothing new. It leads only to the same thing. Death, destruction, devastation. What else can we expect from these who were only there to lead to their own ends? Leading to nothing but actually to pro- the provoking of God. In fact, in verses actually five times in the text that we've examined, that word provoke has been used. That, the, that these king's actions provokes God. It literally means that it exasperates the Lord. He's coming to the end of his patience, so to speak. Evil is that lie. It's the lie that exasperates the Lord. That we can craft better lives than he can. That we can live better lives without him. That we don't need him. That we are not truly sinful. That we are not utterly depraved. That I can make my own way. Like Jeroboam, I can just change my religion and make my religion something new. That I can live my own lifestyle like Elah and live for distractions. We give in to these lives of evil. And we believe that we can make a better way. And all the way through, the king of kings is almost shouting at us through this text. No, you can't. Because your heart is desperately wicked. And you don't need any newfangled things. You don't need any new trinkets or gadgets or gizmos or new studies. What do you need? You need a new heart. You know, what this text reveals out of all these kings is that the only answer to all of the devastation in this world, you can look out the window and see bad news. You can open up the news and see bad news. Lots of it, perhaps. You know what the answer to all of that? It's not a better leader. It's not more policy. It's no new laws. We need Jesus. We need a new heart. We need new hearts to come into us. And that is only available through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the solution. And I don't mean to demean or undermine all of the really horrible, wretched problems of our day. But the answer of all of them comes back to the one who is, quote, the answer. And his name is Jesus. He is the king of kings. Which is why, by the way, I'll just read this. I've read it before, but it just spoke to me so much when I was studying this text. This is why I think Jeremiah 31 is so amazingly powerful. Jeremiah 31, 31. This is the declaration of God's new covenant with man. And what does he say? Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Mm, That should be important. And with the house of Judah, with the very same kingdoms that have otherwise been so derogatory, so despicable, that have led to all of these deplorable ends, that have housed the kings that we've already looked at, that are so wicked, and the ones that we haven't yet even talked about yet. With those same people, the word of the Lord says, I'm going to covenant with them. 
Not according to the covenant that I made, he continues, with their fathers in that day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. With my covenant they break, although I was a husband to them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. The sins that we've seen so prevalently displayed by sinning man are going to be wiped away by the only answer to man's desperate wickedness and evil. The one Who is sovereign over evil. The one who can utilize evil to further his own ends. The one who can rid uh, the sinful man of uh, the sinful heart of man with a word. You are forgiven. So you see that for you this morning. If you feel. So you cannot escape the grip of sin. It has you in a vice-like hold, and you can't get out of it. God himself is your rescue. For those who believe that they are so beyond salvation, they feel that, that we talked about, that total depravity, that they are so corrupt on their own. This gospel announces that your corruption has been taken away and it's been thrown behind God's back. You see, this is the good news through some really bad news. That for however pressing evil feels in our own lives and the lives that are around us, there is one who is more sovereign than all of that. One who is more powerful than all of that. One who is way better, way more loving, way more patient, way more kind, way more gentle, way more uh, sort of righteous, way more holy than all of that. As we sang, way more awesome than all of that. Behold our God, the King of Kings, the one who can take away the sins of the world. That's what was the title given to Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. Yes, all of these desperate evils. This is what God has promised to us in his word. To do and to be for us. He is the one who can take away the evil out of our lives. And out of life around us. He is the answer. He is the King of Kings. Let us pray.